1: Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible.
2: Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Last time I had a conversation about uh, the potential of Canada, Canada's future, United Future being in question was when a Parti Quebecois candidate knocked on my door while I was living in Quebec, trying to sell me on voting for the PQ. I tried to sell him on speaking English. That was the end of that. But yesterday I heard uh, Brian Jean, the uh, aspirant for the leadership of the United Conservative Party of Alberta, as a guest on this program, talking about what's been going on in Quebec, and particularly with Denis Cader, the mayor of Montreal, celebrating the fact that Energy East was canceled. Mr. Jean said, all of that together is a threat to confederation. And I read the letter by uh, Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, the open letter Mr. Wall sent out a couple of days ago. I'll just read you a few lines from that, then we'll talk to our guest, Michelle Rempel, conservative MP from uh, Calgary. She's going to talk to us about her thoughts on Energy East and uh, the pipeline issue and confederation. Here, Here we go. Here's what uh, Premier Wall wrote in part. Former federal liberal cabinet minister and now Montreal Mayor Denis Kader cheers the cancellation of this pipeline. He who leads a city that just two years ago used a pipeline to dump 4.9 billion liters or nearly 2,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of raw sewage into the St. Lawrence Seaway. It's a good thing that Mr. Kader's hypocrisy needs no pipeline for conveyance, for it would need to be a very large and could never get approved for construction. When Kader cheers for the end of this pipeline, he cheers for the imported oil we buy from Saudi Arabia, where women can now drive, but the public beheadings continue. He's cheering against an energy sector in our country that employs thousands and uh, has paid on average over the last three years $17 billion annually in taxes and royalties to the Canadian government. And the Saskatchewan Premier concludes his letter with these, these words. The decision by TransCanada to cancel the Energy East project was made because of a lack of interest in leadership or worse, intentional decisions and policies of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government. He should answer for this. He needs to be held accountable for this. His actions and his government's actions may well have some Westerners wondering if this country really values Western Canada, the resources we have and the things we do to contribute to the national economy. And to quality of life for all. That's from the Saskatchewan Premier, Michelle Rempel, Calgary Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party. Joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Ms. Rempel, thank you very much for the time. So clearly, the mood in Western Canada is anything but accepting of Mr. Kader's behavior and the decision for the cancelling of Energy East which the Prime Minister of this country had something to do with by his lack of enthusiasm, anyway. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think Justin Trudeau would like people like myself to put the focus on Denny Coderre, um, but I refuse to do that because the responsibility and the blame for uh, this decision lies squarely with Justin Trudeau. Um, you know, it, yesterday I saw that he wrote a Facebook post talking about Western separatism and calling it intellectually dishonest, this is somebody who knows that he's in trouble with the Canadian electorate writ large because he spent two years um, swanning around the world showing off special socks while we have a ballooning deficit, uh, a shrinking economy, and, you know, general unhappiness around the country. And so what he wants to do is try and so You know, seeds of discontent within my party to try and get us talking about these sorts of things, uh, with the hope that what happened, you know, in the late '80s after his father's uh, pillaging of the energy sector came to play, he he, these people will do anything to try and stay in power. But there's one thing that they won't do, Roy, and that's put in have the courage to put in place policy that makes sense for the entire country. And make no mistake, Energy East was. A nation building project. It would have brought Canadian product to eastern refineries. It would have, its it, it, it build out would have, uh, you know, employed many, many people, and the long term operation of it would have seen prosperity in this country for generations as well as removing our dependence on Saudi oil. Um, I just, to me, it is so. Like, like he just thinks that we're so dumb, Roy. Like, he honestly thinks that, you know, if he throws out a Facebook post like this, put Denny Coderre up, that all of us are just going to take the bait and and people are going to somehow forget that this is squarely on his shoulders. And it's up to the people who listen to your show, to me and others, to say, no, this is, this is the result of you putting your ego before the best interest of all Canadians, not just Albertans, not just Quebec. And to me, this is entirely his fault, and this is what I'm going to be pushing back against very, 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 very strongly uh, over the next two years.
0: Uh, I've heard the criticism of Trudeau, which uh, is fair and should be expected, and he really has no defense because he is ultimately responsible for what's going on. This is a man who, who, who talked about, uh, who talks a better game than he can possibly deliver. And he talks out of both sides of his mouth at the same time when it comes to the pipelines issue. But that said, is there not a, a visceral response from people in Western Canada that goes something like this? We've seen it before with Dad, and we're not going to go through it again.
3: I guess a few points. First of all, I think Canada has enjoyed a great period of prosperity in you know the last 15 years where we saw the energy sector be responsibly developed, and the benefits of that affected the entire country. Like, there's there's a reason why, you know, we've been able to have the strong social programs, infrastructure that we had over the last 10 years. But it was also because we looked at that policy, like when I was in government, as, as a way to help build the prosperity of the entire country. You know, Trudeau doesn't see it that way. There is an ideological opposition within the Liberal Party, against the development of the the energy sector, because it, you know, it takes away, um, I I actually don't know, I I don't understand what his motive is for that. Um, But it's very clear that both him and his father, you know, had it out for that particular industry. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I want to say is this, like, um, people, you know, liberals are, Trying to spin this desperately like the 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 western separatism stuff this weekend is a desperate spin just as it was saying oh it's a uh you know it's a business decision or oh we've approved pipelines what people don't realize is that these projects take hundreds of millions billions of dollars to build out that's a big risk for a company right and, and it was like all it was all private money
0: it was all private money there was no public absolutely. no public money involved
3: absolutely but for a company to make that decision right there have to be certain cl- like investment dis- climates being in place so for example stability on policy around the regulatory review system mm-hmm. Trudeau completely messed that up mm-hmm. right he changed the rules then all of a sudden he's saying there needs to be a downstream review and for people who don't know what that means they're saying like What Trudeau was saying was like, well, there should be uh, the pipeline should be held responsible for any of the carbon emissions that are coming out of that. That would be like saying, you know, if someone had a gluten attack for the truck that brought a white loaf of white bread to their house. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. Um, And they don't do that for Saudi oil. There's the carbon tax, Roy. There's the tanker ban that they're putting in place. uh, And they scuttled Northern Gateway from a political decision, not from a review panel. It had been approved. They said no, we're not approving this. It was a political decision. And what does that all add up? It says, you know what? Internationally, people look at Canada and they go, there is no way that we're we're investing here. We're just not doing it.
0: I so- can I can fully understand your confusion when you're trying to understand what Justin Trudeau is thinking, or if he's thinking, because while he's uh, castigating the uh, the idea of uh, oil tankers on the west coast, he's quite happy with the idea of oil tankers you know going up and down the applying their trade up and down the Saint Lawrence River that's perfectly fine even though there's a there's an environmentally very sensitive area particularly in the Gaspé that's not that's not of concern to Mr. Trudeau Miss Rempel I have a I just have this question that I naggingly want answered I wonder if there's a bit of a tag team effort going on between Justin Trudeau and Denny Kader.
3: I think that Justin Trudeau looks at his electoral fortunes in 2019 and is making all of his decisions based around that. He knows that the NDP are weak in Quebec right now, and he knows that if he's going to lose seats in other parts of the country, Quebec is where he's going to make them up, right? So a lot of his policy right now is based around easy electoral politics, Um, and I think that Canadians just won't be fooled by that. I honestly think that like the context has changed since the national unity debate in the 1990s, because a lot of Canadians understand that our country is greater than the sum of its parts when it's led by an honorable human being who puts that policy ahead of their own ego and their own electoral fortune. Right. And sometimes that means making a harder, hard decisions and, and, you know, speaking out against something like Denis Coderre. I think that, you know, this Coderre's comments were a way, I think they were hoping people like myself would, you know, start blaming him and deflect the blame off of Trudeau. But, you know, if Justin Trudeau is listening right now, you know, um,
0: Listen, we'd both be we both you know, be surprised
3: yeah well fair enough but you know this is my message to justin trudeau canadians won't buy your garbage anymore they they are tired of seeing increases in taxes and a, a lower standard of living and you know projects like this basically mortgaging the future of our country while you, you swan around the world um doing photo ops with socks and i i just i will not buy into him trying to deflect this into a national unity debate and I'm going to make him accountable. We're going to make him accountable for the fact that this is any national unity question. It's not a question about national unity. It's a question about whether Justin Trudeau can lead a strong united Canada. And the question is no. And I, th- I don't think people are going to look at, you know, um, other alternatives outside of the fact that the number one goal for many people who have seen their livelihoods, who voted for him in good faith, evaporate, mm-hmm. is to say, you're out, boss. See you later.
0: Well, we'll and see that's what
3: certainly what I'm going to be fighting for because the people that I represent, Roy, I, you know, I have had just as many calls into my office from people in Calgary as I have had from Atlantic Canada and Ontario saying, "I cannot believe this happened. You have to use your voice to fight against him." The context has changed, and he's miscalculated this big time.
0: Yeah, well, you're quite capable of putting up a good fight. I've seen that, so uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 no doubt we'll be talking again. And I, I said, sort of facetiously, we'd both be surprised if Trudeau was listening, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's listening. I know certainly some of his cabinet ministers listen because, well, because I know. Um, (laughs) Because I know. his
3: his cabinet, they they listen to this stuff, but they don't listen to it to affect change. Mm -hmm. They listen to it to figure out how to save their own butts in the next election. They don't give two rips about what people are thinking or their livelihood or their policy. It is all about seeking power, and that is fundamentally the difference between Trudeau and every other party.
0: All right, Ms. Rempel, good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Michelle Rimple from uh, Calgary, Conservative Member of Parliament. Clearly, you know, the the election campaign's underway. It already is for 2019, but it's it's a fair comment that uh, Justin Trudeau, ultimately, as the Prime Minister, is going to be responsible for the climate that either creates or does not create momentum for significantly important economic realities like the pipelines. Canadian natural resources going to the international market and helping the Canadian economy absolutely makes sense. Anything to the contrary does not.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: I was reading a tweet from uh, Vivian Krause earlier today. At Fair Questions is her Twitter account. Activists were paid to stop Energy East. As part of a massive U.S.-funded campaign, 30 million via tides to landlock our crude. Vivian Krause has written some fascinating columns for the Financial Post and the National Post about organizations in the United States funding the anti-pipeline activities and activists in Canada. She's been challenged on those as well. Vivian, thank you for the time. Uh, The last time you were challenged before the Press Council, everything turned out all right for you, didn't it? Yes, it did. Thank you for taking the time.
4: My pleasure to speak with you, Roy. the
0: so, away, yeah. So, so, go and tell. Go ahead and tell us what's going on. Where's the money coming from, and where's it being distributed in Canada?
4: Well, thanks for the opportunity, Roy. So, uh, going back now, more than ten years, uh, there's a group of American charitable foundations that have been funding a campaign. Uh, against the Alberta oil industry, specifically to restrict it, to stop it from developing. When I first stumbled across this, I was actually doing research on a completely different topic, and I just happened to notice over and over these payments for a thing called a Tar Sands Campaign. At first, though, we didn't know what it was all about. This was back in 2010, seven years ago, when I first stumbled across this. But now it's clear what the strategy is. In fact, I just uh, tweeted you a link to a web page, your listeners can read for themselves. The uh, people who've been running this campaign, Corporate Ethics International, with funding from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Hewlett Foundation, they say, and I quote, from the very beginning, the campaign was to landlock the tar sands so their crude could not reach the international market or it could fetch a high price per barrel. This meant national and grassroots organizing to block all proposed pipelines. And they go on then to talk about how they take credit even for having helped to defeat the Conservative Party of Canada in the 2015 federal election, playing a role in the Alberta provincial election, and so on.
0: So does this have to do with this this campaign? Does it have to do with environmental causes, or does it have to do with financial causes?
4: Well, that's really a question that I'd love to ha- have you pose to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Why did they start this campaign? Uh, and, and why is it that the only country uh, where they are trying to keep oil in the ground is Canada? You know, they, it, what's happened over the last 10 years is, is oil production with shale in the United States has boomed. You know, production in, in Texas has doubled and tripled. In North Dakota, it's up sevenfold. There's no million-dollar effort whatsoever to slow down oil production in Texas. In fact, the United States has lifted the export ban, and the United States is now exporting oil to more than 20 countries around the world. There's no effort on the part of, of activism to stop the export of American oil. So why is it that Canada is the only country that activism is, you know, as I see it now, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is this activism? Are these guys acting as honest brokers, or is this essentially a form of uh, what you might call economic sabotage? Why is it that Canadian oil is the only oil in the world that is being kept out of overseas markets, and why are we letting this happen?
0: Is there a paper trail, Vivian, to uh, to where this money is all coming from?
4: Absolutely. All these payments are written down. In the tax returns that are submitted to the International uh, pardon me, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, from the charitable foundations, all the research that I've done, and I've traced more than 400 payments from one intermediary funder alone. It's called the Tides Foundation. There's another one. It's called the New Venture Fund based in Washington, D.C. They've made more than 100 payments. So there you go, more than 500 times that, Someone in the U.S., either in San Francisco or in Washington, D.C., wrote a check or a wire transfer to an activist group, First Nations groups, environmental groups, more than 100 in total, that are campaigning to landlock our oil. You know, when it, the, the, the thing about it, uh, you know, Roy, is that if everything that these activists say is true, frankly, it wouldn't matter um, where they're getting the money from if activists are telling the truth about our oil and and what they say about the environmental impacts of the development of the oil sands, if it's true, then they have a right to say it. The trouble with the campaign, though, is that they've grossly exaggerated the actual carbon emissions coming from oil that's produced in Alberta. For instance, they say that carbon emissions associated with crude from the oil sands is three to four times higher than that of conventional oil. that's just not true that would be 300 or 400% higher. The truth is it's only 10 to 20% higher. So yeah, it's a little bit higher, but only slightly, not three or four fold. And that's the problem. It's that because of this exaggeration and because the industry has failed to uh, counteract that and get the truth out there, that we're now in a position where essentially there is a trade barrier. But that trade barrier isn't a wall, it's not a law, it's fear. It's uncertainty. It's doubt. It's what's been created in the perceptions and the minds of people, and the way that public opinion has been turned away from Canadian oil and natural gas to some extent, based on premises that are, for the most part, both.
0: And we have a prime minister who's playing ball. I'll never forget when Mr. Trudeau was in Washington at the invitation of Mr. Obama, and he appeared before the uh, the, the activist uh, left wing organization that was headed by John Podesta, who was the campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton. And Mr. Trudeau sat in a &A Q&A session with this group of internationalists, of globalists, and he said nothing to defend the Canadian oil industry. He said nothing about the oil industry being in difficulty other than saying, yeah, it cost some jobs in Alberta. That's as far as he went. There was nothing from our prime minister to defend or to propose or to, uh, or to promote the oil industry from this country. Not a word. And he was in Washington, D.C. at the time. That spoke volumes to me.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, put yourself for a second in the, in the shoes or the, in the position of, of our prime minister. He has a very, very difficult choice because he can either continue the U.S. monopoly on our oil or he can break that monopoly. He cannot do both. You know, it's it, it, it's to use a silly analogy, but it's like um, it's one of those things that you just can't sort of break it. You know, there's there's no way to please both parties.
0: Mm. Well, the, the, his I job is to his job is to please Canadians, ultimately to take care of the people of this country, and to please the people of of Canada, and uh, and not worry about what the international community thinks so much. By the way, I'm glad you said put myself in his shoes and not in his socks.
4: Well, whatever. We've got joke. more important things to talk about we than do. the Prime Minister's talks. We do. We do. But Vivian, I, mean?
0: I, have to, I have to take some calls, but I thank you so much for coming on the program, and I will invite you back. My pleasure. Thanks. Vivian Krauss. And uh, you will find her columns in the National Post and in the Financial Post. And they're a fascinating read. The one I just read uh, recently was... The cash pipeline opposing Canadian oil pipelines.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: But what the email was all about was the firing of um, CBS vice president of legal affairs. And uh, Haley Gethman Gold's posting on Facebook was outrageous, it was vicious. And it had to do with the mass murder in Las Vegas. If you haven't heard what the posting read, just listen to these words. And if you have, listen to the words. Because in the interim, we've seen photographs, we've seen montages, collages of photos of the faces of those killed by that madman. And here's what um, Geffman Gold posted. I was not even sympathetic, quote, end quote, then to the victims of the Las Vegas massacre because, quote, country music fans often are Republican, end quote. So you have somebody who is intelligent, somebody who obviously has skill sets. When you get to be the vice president of legal affairs, Of an organization as large as CBS, you're going to have skill sets. You'd also like to think there's some common sense. You'd also like to think there's some compassion. And apparently all of the above was missing. Now, she did tweet later on, or she posted on Facebook how sorry she was. Now, this was not reflective of who she is. And it wasn't reflective on her employer, or reflective reflective of her employer. And all I remember read when I read that, I thought, what a miserable human being, also I didn't although I didn't think miserable human being. And then I got that email. And the position of the person who sent the email was, and if you're listening, the person who sent the email is listening. I want you to call me 800 263 2428. The position of the person who sent the email was if somebody had so high up the ladder at CBS to be the vice president in charge of legal affairs of this massive organization would post to Facebook something as unfeeling, as cruel, as vicious as she did, was not even sympathetic because country music fans are often republican if that's how people at the top of the organization feel no wonder red day wrote the emailer i wish i had it that fake news makes it out the other end and i do remember the words the other end were there and so what the person who's sending the email was saying was if the people at the top have a political bent and a political leaning in a, in a media organization, the people behind the microphone or the people in front of the cameras are going to reflect that attitude of the people at the top of the organization. And if the people at the top of the organization have a particular dislike for Republicans, then what comes out in the camera is going to be more than likely anti-Republican or anti-conservative. Now, why am I telling you about this? Two reasons. First one is, I'll tell you anything that I think is important or something that I want to share with you, and I don't care what it is or whose nose I may bend out of shape. I couldn't care less. And the other reason is that never in my employment history, either with this company, uh, Chorus, and our association with Global News, or prior to that, any of the owners of this company never has anyone ever said a word to me about what I should say on the air or what I should not say on the air. Never has anyone said to me that they prefer a certain political party or a certain political philosophy. Never. Never. I've never been criticized for anything I've said on there. Well, you've criticized me, but never been criticized by people I work for. They've never done that. All they've ever said to me was, make sure you keep it legal. After that, express your points of view and 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 engage your callers. That's what we do. But do you believe that person who sent me the email had a point that if the people at the top of the ladder at a major media organization appear to have a political persuasion or a philosophical preference that what comes out of the microphone or out of the camera is going to reflect that opinion, not necessarily what the truth is, but it's going to reflect the opinion of the bosses, i.e. fake news. So 800-263-2428 is my number, 800-263-2428. I want to first talk about the issue of firing this vice president of legal affairs. Because, I mean, did they have cause? Chantelle uh, Goldsmith joins me. She's vice president and partner uh, and specialist in labor and employment practice at Samir Samfiru Tamarkin LLP in uh, in Toronto, and or Sumpher, who has been a guest on this show quite a number of times. Chantelle, thank you very much for taking the time. And and was there cause for firing this woman because what she wrote was on her private Facebook page?
5: Good afternoon, Roy. So there was not cause, in my opinion. I mean, the laws are different in the U.S. than they are in Ontario. However, um, the threshold for cause, there was no, although her remark was callous and irresponsible, in my opinion. It doesn't hit one of the prohibited grounds under the Ontario Human Rights Code, and therefore it would not be cause, in my opinion, because she was not a public figure. Although she did represent um, CBS, she was not in the public eye. So this was on her personal page. This was her personal opinion, and even though it was respon responsible of her to have posted it, it does not amount to cause, in my opinion.
0: Is there a line that uh, that, that separates? what you may say or what you may write on your personal space and what you may not, what may cost you your job or not cost you your job?
5: So if your personal space has ties to your employer, that could um, lead to some issues, especially if what you're posting is discriminatory in some way. So if there's a tie to your employer and that, um, that would be, cause the employer to look negative or have a bad light to the public realm, then yes, that definitely could be cause for dismissal. This was not the case here, though. This was um, a private page. She may have ties to her employer on her private page, I'm not sure, but even if that were the case, it, it wouldn't be cause for dismissal in Ontario.
0: Does it surprise you that the word came out that she was fired by CBS? Would it not have made more sense to have some sort of public relations release that suggested that um, Ms. Uh, um, uh, Haley Geffman-Gold had was apologetic for what she had written and she decided on her own that it was time to, uh, to, to end her employment?
5: Uh, they could have gone that route, for sure. I think it, it does look better to the public that they did terminate her employment. Um, whether or not they would have to have paid her out, I mean, that depends upon what the contract in place they had with her. But in Ontario, the likelihood is they would have had to pay her out some payment in lieu of notice if they did want to terminate her.
0: Okay. Does that surprise you that smart people do such irresponsible things?
5: I see it all the time. <laughs> so, no, really? it doesn't surprise me really? at all. Really? Oh, yes.
0: Because you know, I, looked at this and I, I looked at her photograph, and I, and I can never go by how people look, but she looks like somebody who was you know, in, in control of herself, and she looks uh, like somebody who would be in the position of vice president of CBS Legal Affairs. And then to do that, to put that, and to be a lawyer, you know, and and it's your job to keep the the company legal, and you do that, seems to me to be just absolutely right off the scale.
5: Oh, for sure. It was definitely, um, it was irresponsible, and it was wrong, in my opinion, for sure.
0: But no, uh, no specific cause, certainly not in Ontario, there wouldn't be cause for what she did. No. Chantelle, thank you so much for joining us.
5: No problem at all. I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. Thank
0: you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Chantel Goldsmith is a vice president and a partner, labor and employment practice at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP in Toronto.
2: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Jane Kirtley is the Silha Professor of Media Ethics and the Law at the University of Minnesota. She uh, does a lot of work with Canadian media as well and is very familiar with media in this country as well, as, of course, her own and media globally. Uh, Jane, thank you. It's always great speaking with you, and I'd like your thoughts. First of all, let me just, before we come up with any examples, is there a case to be made that what comes out of the speakers, whether it's radio or television, I hate to use the term these days, but these days is fake news, that an that unappreciable percentage of it is fake news? Yes or no? Um.
4: I don't know what we mean by appreciable percentage i think there is a percentage that is fake news
0: and and how do we define fake news how would how would one of your students maybe define fake news
4: well it's interesting because we've been talking about that in my ethics class the last week or so um i think you know my students would say fake news is information that is not truthful information that is disseminated for the purposes of deceiving. And I, th- I mean, I hope they would say something along those lines. And the reason that I add all those kind of qualifying phrases is because certainly it's true that the mainstream media, however we define it, um, do make mistakes, um, do publish or broadcast things that are not verifiable or are proven to be false. But the distinction for me is whether you're setting out to deceive or whether you deceive, you know, as a byproduct of making an error. And then, of course, if you correct that mistake, if that's the case, and I don't call that fake news, mm-hmm. I call it the kind of errors that media have been making since time immemorial and will continue to make forever.
0: There is a certain amount of pressure that goes along with having to deliver instantly. There's a certain amount of pressure that, that says, my listeners or my viewers need this information now, so we'll do everything we can to verify this but we're going to go with it, and
4: absolutely, I I agree with that. I think you know uh, my co-author and I on, a, on an ethics textbook we wrote talked a lot about this perceived need for speed and the twenty four seven news cycle that everybody is dealing with, compounded by social media, really does exert tremendous pressure on journalists to, uh, you know, post tweet. You know, do something virtually minute by minute, and inevitably that means a lot of the stuff they publish in that way is not yet verified and may turn out to be false.
0: So that's the that's the social media angle of things, and that takes me to the conversation that I was referencing in an email. And it had to do, the email had to do with the vice president of legal affairs for CBS who was fired because of her posting that she was, quote, not even sympathetic, end quote, and then to the victims of Las Vegas massacre, um, the massacre there, quote, because country music fans often are Republican, end quote. She was fired for that. And, and the email that I received suggested that what that – this is the person's opinion who wrote the email, not mine – that the opinion of the person at the top of the ladder, as it were, the corporate ladder, will filter down to the people who are in front of the camera or behind the microphone, and it will begin to reflect what they do on air, or I suppose if we get off the broadcast media, go to print, what they print, because they want to be, um, they want to they want to reflect what they think their bosses believe, and I suppose that's the old you know cover your backside approach to things. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, but she lost her job over the Facebook posting. Did she lose, in fact, uh, did she uh, deserve to lose her job? And do you think there is an attitude behind the camera and behind the microphone or in front of the camera that says, I think my boss feels this way, so I better feel this way on the air? Well, I think there
4: are a couple of Distinct issues here first of all um, this was uh, one of many uh, in-house counsel that CBS has. I know a lot of the lawyers that work in the media because I'm a lawyer myself. This is not an individual with whom I was I'm familiar which you know doesn't mean anything in and of itself but I know a lot of the lawyers that are in- house and she's not one that I know. number two, I would say it would be very unusual for lawyers to set editorial policy or even have much input in editorial policy. That's, that's not what lawyers are there to do. They're there to make sure you're in compliance with the Federal Communications Commission regulations. They're there to make sure you're not uh, engaging in libel speech, things like that. But they don't set editorial standards. Now, I can't say she isn't reflecting something she's heard from her bosses, but nevertheless, well, that's I can say interesting. this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really—I mean, I—I'm—I'm I'm not disagreeing with CBS's decision to fire her. I think that news organizations struggle a lot with how much of a presence their employees should have on social media in general, and one of the reasons for that is because they will sometimes think, say things unfiltered that reflect back on the news entity, CBS News, in this case, and are not consistent with the um, views of of that company. Again, we can't know all the answers to that, but I think it was a very ill-advised thing to do. I mean, I was shocked that a lawyer would do something like that, um, simply because that kind of comment, either you know pro or con on, on social media, is simply not consistent, I'm sure, with CBS News's standards and practices.
0: No. One of the and I haven't said this yet in this hour, um, Jane, but one of the reasons I think that news stories can be picked apart, not all the time, but can be picked apart, because quite often there are people with not a tremendous amount of experience delivering the product. And so they don't have the experience, they don't have the the knowledge that goes along, that experience provides you. They don't have examples that they can use to cross-reference if they're in a hurry, uh, you know, in their brains. And so I think one of the reasons that it sounds wrong and turns out wrong at times is because the person who's delivering it just doesn't have a lot of experience.
4: And that's what editors are for. That's what um, editors you know, are for, yeah. You know, young journalists, uh, you know, are, of course they can't have the frame of reference that somebody that's been in the business for 30 years would have. But that's why you have a layer of yep. editors yep. Uh, to protect them from themselves.
0: Right. Yeah. So are we better at what we do now uh, and and. Is it, is it an ethical issue? Is it a question of ethics at all? Are we better at delivering news, more news, more information uh, than we were 20 years ago? And how much of a responsibility is there on the person who is consuming the information to make sure they know what they're talking about and are not just shouting at the television or the radio, you're wrong when they're wrong?
4: To answer your second question first, I'd say it absolutely is something that consumers of news and information have a responsibility to do. We shouldn't be relying upon any one source or any two sources. There are myriad sources out there, and we ought to take advantage of the fact that we have those options available. Again, my students and I were talking about this just last week, which is, how do you corroborate what you see and and if it doesn't make sense or even if it does make sense making an effort to see if others are are reporting the same thing before concluding that you've got it right or that they've got it right Mm -hmm. in terms of whether we're doing a better job or not i think you know to me there there are certain baselines in terms of of the quality of news delivery accuracy is the f- most important thing speed is inevitably the second most important thing and as we talked about the need for speed is undermining the first so i think the potential is there i mean the ability to research things online to contact people electronically this is these did not exist a few years ago so it's one of those things where it could lead to very good things but You know, just what we've seen with some of the newer social media companies, Facebook, Googles of the world, we can see that this technology is not always used for good journalism. It can be used, frankly, for propaganda, uh, for, you know, purposely trying to bias uh, results, things like that. Those are not good things, and I'm I'm not here to support them.
0: And one other thing I hadn't mentioned yet, and I was waiting to mention some of these issues until we got further into the hour, but news develops so quickly now, and news stories take on different angles and different perspectives in the middle of telling what, what, what you already had, I mean, what you had in front of you. So you're, re- you're reporting the news as it existed 30 seconds ago, and now something else moves that you haven't seen, but eventually the consumer is going to be aware of, and you're going to sound like the person who wasn't you know, up to speed because everything moves at such an incredible rate of speed now
4: it's incredibly frustrating i think and you know I, I look at a website like say the new york times for example but you could pick any n- number of others who have a lot of reporters and are not able to you know multiple team coverage of things like the last las vegas shooting and things like that mm-hmm. and they'll have all these different things but smaller news organizations that don't have those resources you're absolutely right they can be left behind not because they're not trying to do a good job, but they simply don't have the time and the resources to pursue every conceivable angle. The the other thing, of course, I think, is that people do understandably want explanations right now when things happen, and often those unfold over a period of days, weeks, months, and it's, it's hard to kind of teach people patience when they see how instantaneously information and misinformation can spread.
0: Right, and fake news is when an organization unethically delivers information they know to be false and they deliver it anyway with an agenda in mind that's fake news
4: exactly I mean again for me the deception is a, is a critical factor because you know it, and I'm not talking about editorial decisions I'm talking about putting out something you know isn't true and your goal is to mislead
0: uh, yeah. the public Jane was great talking to you thank you so much for the time
4: thank you Roy it's a, always
0: a pleasure Jane Kirtley is the Silha Professor of Media Ethics and the Law at the University of Minnesota,
2: you're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.
0: Senator Denise Batters joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Senator, thank you very much for the time. And thank you. Uh, you and I have had some very interesting conversations recently, particularly about initiatives that the Prime Minister has been involved in. One uh, has dominated, and that's fair taxes, as he and his his Minister of Finance like to to say. And you sent me um a message earlier in the week that has to do with the issue of mental health and its Mental Illness Awareness Week. So please, Senator, go ahead.
1: Yes, well, actually... um It's mental illness awareness week this week. One in four Canadians will suffer from mental illness at some point during their lives. And reviewing this whole issue of unfair tax changes, there are so many unintended consequences um, that this Trudeau government has not thought about. And I thought of one more, um, which I wanted to ask Finance Minister Bill Morneau about in Senate question period this week. And that's um, the issue of yeah, small business owners, farmers, and professionals being able to use their passive investments in their companies as an emergency fund. And what came to my mind was that emergency could be a mental health emergency. If somebody experiences a significant period of mental illness, they might need to take substantial time away from work. They might also need to access help from a treatment center. Um, and they can't use under this new Unfair tax changes; they wouldn't be able to use their own money saved in their company for this type of um, um, an emergency.
0: And those are emergencies because people don't talk about their their mental health and their stability, their own stability, until it's sometimes the last possible moment. And when you say okay. emergency, that means like right now. And if you Absolutely. if you if you can't make the if you can't make the call because you don't have the money, that could have terrible consequences.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, recently, Finance Minister Morneau called passive investments dead money. Well, I thought that was just a horrific uh, phrase, Um, but this money, particularly in this circumstance, could be used actually to help people on the road to recovery and even save their lives. And, uh, of course, the federal government would say, well, we wouldn't prevent people from using that money. No, but they would be taxing it at a terrible rate of 73%. So... um, what I wanted to ask the minister to let him know that it's already difficult enough to convince people that are suffering with significant mental illness to take time off work and to access treatment. And certainly onerous federal taxes shouldn't be another impediment to that, particularly when people who are working in these particular fields, small business owners, farmers, professionals, they in a lot of cases don't have paid sick leave and they don't have a disability plan like his family business sells through Morneau Chappelle. They need to access the money that they have saved through their companies for those kinds of emergencies
0: and you also have uh, you have a video up about it right i did because i didn't get to ask
1: uh, the finance minister these questions in senate question period because he really tried to talk out the clock and give five minute answers that didn't really answer anything at all we ran out of time so i decided to make a video right in front of uh, the canada revenue agency national headquarters so I put that video up on my uh, on my Twitter, which is at Denise Batters, and my Facebook, Senator Denise Batters, and I just recently reposted it here so that your listeners would be able to see it. And those are the questions that I'm wanting his answers about, especially this week during Mental Illness Awareness Week. Clearly his finance bureaucrats, this is yet another unintended consequence that they didn't think about when they were drafting these unfair tax changes. So I'm asking him, given the gravity of this oversight, I'm asking him to cancel his plan to tax those kind of emergency funds at such an onerous rate.
0: Senator, thank you for the time. It's an important uh, consideration, and it's important for the finance minister to answer that question.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much, and uh, those of us in the Conservative Caucus will continue to fight these unfair tax changes every step of the week, uh, every step of the way, I should say, and uh, and hopefully we'll get the government to turn around on this. All right. I also want to wish you a uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and all your listeners.
0: Thank you, Senator. Same to you and, and your family and uh, everyone in your offices. Thanks for the time today, and thanks for the reminder. Senator Denise My Batters
2: pleasure.
0: on The Roy Green Show on the Corpus Radio Network.
2: Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.